up a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show, Season 3, Episode 20. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Restory Conference, September 16th at Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, from 8.30 to 1 in the afternoon. This year's focus is going to be on restoring your relationships. So if you're struggling in your relationships or you would like to see some, some dynamic change in your relationships, go ahead and register at therestoryconference.eventbrite.com. And I would just love to see you there. I'll be one of the speakers, but we'll also have four different testimonies as well as some really great worship. So please be um, praying for the Restory Conference. And I also would love to see you no matter where you're coming from. So there's a hotel right across the street from the church that you can stay in. So anyway, I would also just really appreciate it if you would do a quick two-sentence review on iTunes about the Restory Show. Or if you would just share this episode with a friend, um, chances are you're going to have someone that, you're lis- that you listen to this show and you think of them exclusively. So pass this on. This is going to be one of those shows that you're going to want to pass on to a friend. If you'd like to share your story, you can record a four-minute story on marydemuth.com. And on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a gray box that has a microphone in it, and you can share your story there. So today I am welcoming Alan Arnold, and uh, some of you may know him through writing circles if you're a writer, but he has uh, worked at Thomas Nelson Fiction for uh, many years and then now works at Ransom Heart Ministries. And he loves to go around the country and talk about story and creativity and creating with your father. He has a new book out called The Story of With. And I am really excited about sharing this with you because boy, was it a convicting episode for me. I am such a doer, and I'm not much of one who rests in the love of God. So Alan's story is just permeated with God's love, and I think you're going to be really encouraged. So without further ado, here is Alan Arnold. Hey, everyone. It's Mary from The Restory Show, and I am so excited to have Alan Arnold on. And he and I have been friends for a while now. He, I met him at a conference, probably a Christian writers conference about eight years ago, for novelists. And um, Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I can't wait to, to go into the discussion today. So tell us a little bit about your growing up years and how you met Christ. And you probably have a family now. Just give us a snapshot of what your life is like. Yeah. So a snapshot is I grew up in Texas, was there the first 27 years of my life in a, a town near Houston and love Texas, still do. Um, all things seem to be bigger and better there. And uh, a love of Mexican food that started when I was probably two months old. I do have a family. My wife, Kelly, is, um, we've been married almost 19 years, almost 20 years, um, going on 20, and have three children, have a 12-year-old, 14, and 16-year-old. And so in the throes of the teenage years, and to, to go back to when I first uh, came to Christ, that was really in my high school years. I had grown up in the church, knew it, uh, knew the content, had been in Sunday school from as early as I can remember, but didn't really take it personally, didn't really understand what it meant not just to believe facts, but to have a relationship with God until my high school years. 
That's awesome. And of course, you know, Tex-Mex is always the best. So. Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine, you know, I grew up in Seattle and then I moved to Texas and now I can't imagine my life without Tex-Mex. So I, I hear you on that, that love. So Alan, what kind of story do you want to share with the listeners today? Go ahead and start it and I'll interrupt you and bother you about it and ask questions and clarify and we'll go forward. Yeah, I want to share a story that happened to me probably um, about 15 years ago. And it was one of the most transformative moments of my life. I didn't realize at the time, as most people don't, what the story was about to to be. But I had been uh, in Christian publishing for about 20 years. And this uh, this was about 10 years into that journey. And I uh, thought that if I was being productive, I was just really, that was all that was asked and required. And I believed in what I was doing. I wanted to do a good job and was just a super hard worker on myself. Uh, And with others, I expected the same. And so this is a story where I thought everything was going along pretty smooth. And suddenly my boss uh, one day came in and said, Hey, let's, let's go down for lunch. And he took me downstairs. We had a restaurant downstairs at our office building. And basically in that moment, Mary, he just said, Alan, do you realize you've got a team underneath you of about 10 people? This was before I had become a fiction publisher. Uh, And he said, do you know all of them just think you're a complete jerk, a workaholic? You're too harsh. You're you're not caring uh, for their hearts. And the only reason that they're staying with you uh, is because you're so successful and it's such a thriving, growing division. But if it wasn't for that, uh, they would all leave. And and his question to me was, do you realize what kind of man uh, you are right now and your effect on others? And that was, uh, so this is, this is a a transformative story, but it, it starts in a very hard place which was coming coming kind of face-to-face with who I was, and I didn't even realize it. Like, I didn't even think that was, I really, at that stage of life, I really believed as long as you were being successful and productive and, and you were your goals were good uh, and you were working for a company that did good things, then pretty much everything was okay. And it was the first time I had really, really looked inwardly as a, as a man and saw myself through the eyes of others and realized that's not the man I want to be. And so that was the, that this story really, that was the beginning of a season and a journey of transformation that caused me to have to, to learn God differently, to lean in differently. Uh, So as you look back on that moment, I mean, you're a completely different person today than you were then. I mean, I don't know that person. I I never knew you that way. I've only known the more compassionate Alan, you know, the the one who loves Jesus and who is is well in touch with who he is and who he is in Christ. And so that must have been a pretty terrifying moment for you. And did you like immediately like go home and talk to your wife about it? Or how did that, did you talk to your team about it? What did you do next? Well, it, when he told me that, it really felt like somebody had thrown a basketball straight to my stomach and knocked all the air out. I, I, I thought he was probably inviting me down to tell me I was about to be promoted, 
or something, oh, no. something really good because things were going really well. And and the thing is, um, I, I my supervisors and I had a great relationship. So it was really the team underneath me because I wanted to deliver for the people who were at the higher levels on, on the people who worked for me. I started to drive them as hard as I drove myself. So I wasn't I didn't see myself as doing anything unfair to them. It was the life I was living. I was there 80 hours a week. I was giving everything I had to work. And so I just kind of expected them to do the same. And so after that, Mary, uh, when he said that, I can still remember so clearly there was this moment where either I could take that in or I could push against it. And explain to him why the team didn't know what they were talking about. Why, look, we're the most we're the most successful team in the company right now as far as what we deliver. Everything's great. Everything's great. But I really sense the Holy Spirit saying, "Take this in. Just listen. Just listen." And so it was the first time in that season of my life that I didn't try to come back with a quick answer or to push back if I felt threatened. Um, and I did. I just said, thank you. I I didn't realize that's how they saw me, but I, I want to think about this. And I really went home and um, actually on the way home, went out to a park and just sat for a couple of hours. And it, it was this moment where there's there's those times where you know you're at a fork in the road and you know you can go one, to the left or to the right. And I just found myself saying, God, I don't want to be that man anymore. And it's not just how other people see me. It's how who I am that I want to change. I want to change on an internal level, not just an external level. And so, yep, I went home, talked to my wife about it. The thing is, Mary, to be honest, my wife wasn't surprised because the way you treat others is really the way you're treating your own heart. And I was I was expecting a lot from her and pushing her. I was I was wanting her to be as driven as me in areas of keeping up the house and with the kids and and so you know she's too kind to have said to have said some of the things my boss probably did, but it resonated with her because she knew that's that's kind of how I was going through life at home and at work, and so that was the moment of everything starting to change now. Pause. The thing I would add there is just to, to the listeners and to tell you is, you know, I was a Christian at that time. I had been since high school working at a Christian publishing company, taught Sunday school during that time, loved God. So this wasn't this a situation of some hard driving agnostic guy who finally then meets God. Like I knew about God and I believed in him and I was working in an industry to help people know more about him. And yet the key is I was really living as an orphan and I didn't know that language then, but that's how I describe it today. I was living as an orphan. I believed in God. I loved him, but I didn't know how to do life with him. And I sure didn't know him as a father. And so I had fallen into a trap where all of my validation, my worth, my identity was basically tied to what I did. And so if that's the case, well, the more you do, then the better you are. And so I had found myself without ever really thinking about it on this path of do more 
and do more and do more. And mm-hmm. if you hit a home run with a book campaign or with a marketing promotion and uh, it works really well, boy, the pressure's on to even do better next time. And if you do really well there, the pressure's even higher. And so there was really no rest, no restoration, no savoring. It was simply chasing success again and again, and it had to be bigger each time. And, and, you know, to some degree, bosses, supervisors, the industry loves that because on an outward level, you're, you're making things happen and you're the go-to guy. But I was living as an orphan and I didn't know God as a father. And so I was, I was running in all the wrong directions for validation and for approval and for continued success. That really resonates me with me because I have just recently been thinking about how I live as if everything, if I'm ever going to be happy, it has to depend on me and I have to take care of myself. No one else is going to do that. And that, you know, goes back to my childhood of just knowing there was no one there to protect me. And so I'm learning slowly how to let go of that. And I do think also it's a curse of those who have achievers in their strengths finder is that it can be a great thing to have. It can be really great to be an achiever because you get a lot done. But the problem is you'll make it to the top of a 10,000 foot peak. And instead of putting your flag in the ground and looking around and thinking, look at this, this is so beautiful. You're looking at the 11,000 foot peak. And then suddenly you're climbing all the 14ers in Colorado. And then you've got to go to Kathmandu. (laughs) And it just never ends. And you never, like you said, it doesn't, it's not restorative. It's, it's a striving after the wind and it never ends. And so I'm, I'm so grateful you shared that part of the story because it, it's, I think it can resonate with a lot of people. But um, how did you get beyond that? Like, how did you, I mean, obviously it's going to come back to knowing that you're a son of the most high God and he loves you deeply, but how did that journey look like for you? Yeah. Well, the journey, it was longer than it needed to be because it was harder for me to navigate. I didn't really, I didn't really have a sage or a mentor to lean into. And so what happened, Mary, was over the next year or two, I really focused on, okay, how do I be a kind king? As a leader, how do I serve others well? It's not all about me anymore. It's not about even making things happen. First, it's first about me looking out for them. And so really over the course of a couple of years, I probably went from being the person that was one of the hardest to work for to the, to the, the guy that most people wanted to work for. Because if, if anybody had to stay late, it would be me. I would send them home to go to dinner with their family. Uh, if it was weekend work, I would do it. If, if there had to be tough cuts, I would try to cut part of my own budget rather than lose a staff member you know, or a marketing budget. I would do whatever it took to be basically look out for the team and be a kind leader and generous leader. But here's the deal. It was, it was external. Externally, I had done a 180, like I was a new man and I was doing it for the right reasons. But internally, I was still living as an orphan because I still believed it was all up to me. I had just shifted from being a hard driver of people and kind of the bull in the china shop to being a kind king. But, but on myself, I was as relentless, if not more than ever. 
And I really, because see, the lie was still, it's all up to me. Now it's, now it's all up to me to be a kind king. Now it's all up to me to protect the staff. Now it's all up to me that we hit our budget for the year. And so even though on an external level, I looked radically different and it was genuine, I still was living as an orphan. And so that took me honestly about another decade of doing that before I realized, wow, like I'm kind of on a, my ladder is perched on a different, you know, building and it, and it feels a lot better a lot of the times and people love the community I've created, but internally I feel like I'm about to implode. And so that was really the next phase of my journey. And that was about five years ago. And about five years ago, um, I was given the chance to, I was invited to move to Colorado to work with Ransomed Heart and, and leave everything we knew. We were in Nashville at the time and it was a huge decision. Um, but at the end of the day, it came down to my wife, Kelly and I hearing God say, yeah, like I'm in this and I'm, I'm giving you the invitation. It's through Ransomed Heart, but it's my invitation. And so then Kelly and I had to decide when we hear God, do we want to be the man and woman to say yes? Or do we want to keep asking a lot of questions of, well, okay, God, but first, like we guarantee this and, and what about this? And will we find a church we like as much? And what about our kids in school? And financially, what about this and that? And we just realized, no, we're going to, we're going to be the ones who say yes, and we're going to trust And so, Mary, that started five years ago, my journey of sonship. And even even when I was a kind leader, I was still trying to do that in my own strength and wisdom. And so for the first time five years ago, I was able to say, God, I I don't know how to do this life successfully, but I do know the only hope is to learn how to be a son. And so if you'll father me, I'll be an eager son and I'll quit relying on my own strength, on my own smarts, on my own ways that have worked in the past. And I'm just going to walk with you. And whatever that looks like, I'm going to quit pushing things uphill and striving and, and trying to figure it out. And Mary, that last five years has obviously been the sweetest five years. It hasn't been easy, but you know, um, best and easy or rarely on the same path. And, and, um, so this path that I'm on now, it's not easy, but it has been my favorite five years of my entire life because every day I get to wake up expectant as a son and see, you you can't be an orphan and a son or an orphan and a daughter at the same time. And so I've been able now to leave that orphan mindset or realm and enter into what I would call a freedom realm because now I live as a son. And so when an obstacle comes up, I don't have to know all the answers. I just have to lean into my father and I can wake up each morning expectant and ask my, my dad, my heavenly father, what's today going to be like? Will you give me an advance heads up or is there something I need to know before I get out of bed even? And it really has changed everything. So I'm still you know, trying to live as a kind king or leader, but now internally, 
it's 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 not just external. Internally, the rhythm of my heart is to follow him. And so there's no burnout. There's no internal wrestling. It really is each day being the same man inside and outside, which is becoming more and more Christ-like. Um, and, and it's been really, really a good season. And even the hard days, I get to, to go through it with my father. So I've used kind of the story, which is a really short one to, to keep me grounded. But my youngest son, ever since he was four or five, I have a really big truck. And I guess that comes from loving Texas and all things, you know, Texan, but that's right. You'll never leave. <laughs> and it's, it's not a new truck. It's, you know, it's 10 years old, but, but he will always want to go with me wherever I'm going. And the cool thing is he never asks where we're going. If I just say, Hey, Chase, I'm going to run an errand. He's like, can I go? I'm in, I want to go. Well, he doesn't ask where initially he doesn't ask me if I have enough gas to get there. If I have enough money in my wallet or whatever it is, if I know the directions, like he totally trusts and he pulls up the console that that's between the driver's seat and the passenger seat slides over leg, touching leg, arm, touching arm. And he just is, he just wants to be with me. And it's been this beautiful picture where God has said, Alan, that's what I'm inviting you into. That's what I want our relationship to be is if I say, Hey, you want to go on an adventure? The answer is yes. It's not, well, I don't know. What is the, where are you, where are you going? I'll decide if you tell me where, or it's not like, you know, as kids get older, all of a sudden it's, well, yeah, dad, we'll go if we can stop here, here and here on the way home. Or if we can go to this restaurant or if we can do something else other than whatever the father's inviting them into. And so that's, that's really how I try to approach each day now is, God, you've got a big truck. I'm in. I know you've got the funds financially covered. I know you know where you're headed. I know you want to bring me delight and joy and train me in your ways. And so I'm in. And Mary, that's been the biggest, the biggest part of my journey into sonship has just been over these five years, watching him again and again and again, show me better ways than I could have ever imagined. I mean, the, the best I could have asked of God would have paled in comparison to what he's shown me and told me and how he's just invited me into more. And it's beyond what I could have even asked for if I had, if I had tried to make a list. So that's where I am today. And that's all started though, back in time at that conversation over a lunch table where it was the worst, it was the worst possible thing I could hear. I thought at the moment that led to the best possible journey. I love that. And I wonder what, like an hour in your life, let's go back 15 years, what that would look like versus an hour of your life today. Like sketch that out for us, the difference between Alan then and Alan today. Oh, <laughs> easy, easy. And an hour in my day 15 years ago or, or earlier, even further back than that would have been, I would have had a to-do list and anything that distracted that element of me being productive, getting that list done would have really caused me to have gotten in a, in a cranky mood. 
And so if, if somebody would have knocked on my door and said, Hey, Alan, I need to talk. I've, I've got this issue I'm struggling with at work. It, I would have been, I would have done it, but the whole time I would have been going, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to not get five things done. The day is shot. The day is, is, you know, has been derailed. If I didn't get a workout in, in the morning, if I didn't have a chance to read the paper, go buy Starbucks, all these things that I measured at the end of the day, the day would have been successful if everything got done. The day was unsuccessful if it didn't. And it was more unsuccessful the more things that didn't happen. And if you notice, like God's not in that equation at all. It was all me trying to control my world for what I thought would bring the most happiness or the most satisfaction or even on a more noble way, you know, boy, that would have just gotten the, it would have been the most efficient. I would have gotten everything that needed to be done, done. And so efficiency was what I was chasing after every day, productivity. And it was just, it was a very small story because if you try to live in something that you can control, your world has to get smaller and smaller because the reality is we don't control very much at all. And so that was my world 15 years ago, my day 15 years ago. Today, I really try to approach each day with this expectant heart and just say, I, I kind of, I know what my day looks like on a calendar. I know what meetings I have. I know what needs to get done. And yet God, this is your day. And so if, if I need to spend a couple of hours with somebody, you know, if, if all of a sudden the car breaks down or if a friend needs something, okay, like, God, I see you in that. I see you in that. My, my wife's father, a couple of years ago, we were talking and it was New Year's Eve. And he said, Alan, what are your resolutions for the new year? And I said, well, let me just, here's four or five. I'd like to do this, 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 and this. And he said, wow, that's like, you're, you're talking about some really full days. And uh, every day seems like packed to try to make those things happen. And I was like, right, it is. But it's going to be so incredible because I'm going to get all these things done in the course of a year. And he said, yeah, well, my only question is, are you leaving space for God to show up? And he said it really kind with a wink you know, but he was totally right. I, I was leaving no time in my schedule for God to show up, for him to direct the, the day. I had it totally mapped out and was totally frustrated if it didn't happen. So that's the real difference now is just, and there's freedom in that, right? Like when you approach your day that way, you still have goals, you still have deadlines, you still have things that have to get done but no longer is the to-do list the determiner of a successful day. A successful day is, did I do this day with God? If I did it with God, it's successful. And, and maybe nothing on the list gets done. And, and, you know, used to, if everything on the list got done, man, it was a killer day. And so night and day difference in how I approach the day. And, and I might add a night and day difference on my stress level, on my ease of just going through the day, breathing easy, when things I don't have answers to things, is saying, God, I really don't know how this is going to work out. Will you father me in this? Will you reveal this? Rather than on the drive home trying to figure something out so that I can have all the answers for my wife or for a coworker the next day or for a boss. It's it's amazing. It's the freedom in it. So how do you connect 
that in in walking with the spirit every moment of the day with creativity because I know that that's what you're talking about a lot lately and I would love to just to hear your thoughts on that. Right. Well, it, that's that's my favorite question to answer. You know, I really have come to see our creativity is not something, you know, a lot of times I think people will look at their creativity as well, this is what I'm good at and I'm good at this because I practiced really hard or I'm a storyteller because a librarian in third grade gave me a love of story or my parents read to me at bedtime since I was a kid and that gave me a love of story or whatever it may be. But I see creativity now differently. I see creativity as something God instills in us before we were born. So yes, our parents and the librarian and our coach and band teacher all played a role in who we are. But God gave us the gift before we were born, knitted into us while we were in the womb. And I believe he did that, Mary, as a homing device, if you want to call it that, so that as we grew up and and we started having desires and dreams and passions for certain things unique to us, that was God's way as a father to invite us into intimacy with him. In other words, the gifting will never be fulfilled or actual never will be realized in its fullest until we co-create with the creator. And so God's given people every type of diverse gift and longing, you know, um, for some it's being a chef, for some it's being an architect, for some it's accounting, teaching, stay at home mom, raising kids, a musician, a storyteller. But when he gives us that gifting, it's an invitation to do it, to plumb the depths of it like a, a treasure we're unearthing with him. And so that's why I think the enemy attacks our gifting so much because it's not so much that he really cares if we write a book or if, or if we cook a great meal, if we're a chef. What he doesn't want is us to discover greater intimacy with God through our creativity. And so our gifting is often opposed spiritually in ways that would probably surprise people if they really if they really looked at it through this lens. And I think the reason why is because the enemy is absolutely determined to derail us from knowing God more intimately and to know our identity more fully. And I think our creative gifting is the way we one of the main ways we get to do that. Because as we grow as sons and daughters, the father keeps going, okay, now this, now this, now this, just like we would do how we would raise our son or daughter. You've learned this, now learn this, now, now run, now manage this, now try this. And the more mature we get, the more we get to dive into deeper water. So that's what I love talking to people about is how do you see your creativity? A lot of it comes into, you know, what is your motive for doing what you do? And it's fine to make a lot of money at your calling. It's fine to help a lot of other people to do things for God or to tell people about God through your gifting and talent. But I, I keep coming back to the main reason God gave us our gifting and our talent isn't so we can do things for him. It's so we can do things with him. That's the foundation. And that's why at writers conferences, craft Yes, it's essential. It's important. The business side of writing, yes, 
it's essential. You have to know it. You need to, you need to be wise in that. But neither craft nor business is the foundation of our calling. Our foundation is are we doing it with God? Are we approaching it, our gifting, and co-creating with God actively and intimately? And if we put anything else as the foundation, eventually we will implode. Eventually it will hit a dead end. Guaranteed, 100%. And so, but if we have that as our definition of success... Am I creating with God? Am I learning more about the creator through co-creating with him in whatever that is? Then we have success at that moment. Success isn't determined on the outcome of the book or the meal or whatever else it may be. Success is determined in the birthing and the creating of it. And so we don't even have to wait till the end to know if it's successful if we create with God, it we are successful in the only definition that matters. Now, from there, it can ripple and have a lot of other effect and impact in terms of other people, in terms of ministry, in terms of entertainment. But that has to be the foundation if we want one that's going to last. And so that's what I invite people into and, and try to help them understand what does this look like? How do we do this? Um, because it is mysterious. It's not it's not a formula. God never is contained by formula. And so as humans, we always want the formula. And I think God just smiles really big and says, you get me, you don't get a formula. And, and so word count, for instance, with writers, you know, having a daily word count is good, but God isn't bound to a word count. And if we're not careful, we'll start trying to measure our success by an external measurement, a number you know, the number could be our ranking on Amazon. It could be our daily word count. It could be how we're doing versus another writer. It could be how many more books we sold this year than last year. All of those external measurements, though, are orphan ways of evaluating our creativity. And none of those really reveal if we did what we do with God. And so, and so they're not bad. They're just not the foundation. But it's what we get distracted by. I so agree. And I think as I look back, I think I've written like 30 something, 35 books now. And I often say that each book I've written has been God's avenue of healing for me as I've created them. And so in in a sense, like whether other people get to be a part of that and they buy the book, that's one thing. And that's nice if it happens. But wow, I mean, God's used my own creativity to heal my heart. And I think that's so much along the lines of what you're saying is that the way in which he's wired you is the spiritual pathway in which he intersects your life. And so your creativity can be a part of that even healing process. So I appreciate what you had to say about that. Well, and you know, Mary, it's just from having been a publisher for so long and now still working with writers, nonfiction, fiction. One of the things that I think is the biggest stumbling block is people get have a deadline a lot of them, if they're publishing, you know, they're with a publisher or they have committed to a certain time frame for their book. And so the deadline becomes the measurement of success. And really hitting a deadline only proves you can hit a deadline, which which is is a nice thing to be able to do. You need to be able to keep your word and your commitment. But so many books are born, if we could see behind the scenes, with striving, tension, the author is snappy with their spouse, with their kids. 
They're jacked up on, you know, their 12th cup of coffee. They're bleary-eyed up at 3 a.m. And there's, in other words, there's not a lot of life in them, but they're trying to breathe life into a story or a manuscript. And even if they hit the deadline, they haven't really succeeded. They've turned in a manuscript on time. They fulfilled a contract. But again, like, like we're saying, if you shift your definition of success to, was there any life in what I did if I had no life in me while I was doing it? And if I relied on my own strength and my own grip my teeth and muscle it through, I think the best that can be said about a lot of those projects is, well, the deadline was hit, the contract was fulfilled, and there's a book that's available if people want it. Yet if people knew behind the scenes how the birthing process, they would probably run the other way. There's no eternal spark in that. There's no eternal brilliance that will transcend and invite people into more because you, again, you can't invite people into more than you're living in. And I think that's a big problem with most of the books out there. We really don't need more books. There's The world has plenty of books. None of us could read a third of them if that's all we did. But we do need more stories from people who have spent time in the presence of the creator and have that glow and have that eternal spark in them. We need a lot more of those books. The problem is most of the books aren't being written that way. So... Just to zero in like we've been doing on writers for a second, I mean, that's what I really try to invite storytellers into is there's a better way to create, there's a better way to give birth to story, and it starts with the foundation. And it starts with an active, intimate, co-creative fellowship with God. So you just um, released a book, and so how has that process been for you this year? Well, it's it's been a good process of helping me live what I'm inviting others into. That's what I'm thinking. And so tell us the title of it and what's it about? The title is The Story of With, W-I-T-H. I I self-published it. It's available on Amazon as a a paperback or an ebook. And The Story of With is really an allegory of what is it like through story to enter into uh, a deeper process of discovery with uh, God. And in the story, it's it's this woman named Mia who's 29, and she finds herself on this journey that she didn't really want to be on. She's at her wit's end. She is basically everything she's tried to find validation in has, has fallen out from underneath her. And so she gets invited into this mystical, fantastical journey, uh, a little bit of a Ted Decker type story where she has to enter into story. And so she finds herself in this brownstone building in a matrix-like setting where every floor, as the elevators open, she has no idea what's going to be on the other side of the doors. But she has to fill these four vials in order to get back out of story into our world. And so it's a way for me to take the reader on what I think is a pretty fast-paced, fun adventure, but it really is anchored in the vials are anchored in what we need to discover to go through life with God actively and intimately. And so that's what the book is. Now, I it came out last September, so it's been out about seven or eight months. And 
you know, Mary, when you're writing a book, you're so, as writers know, you're so into the process of story. That's really all you can think about at the time. Like it, it consumes all of your free time. Your creativity is in the story. But then once the book's out, well, then I think the enemy can hit us pretty quick with, yeah, but nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to discover it. What, what are you going to do? You're going to have to spend now all your time really striving to help people know about it. And, and if they don't know about it, what a waste of time. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just going to disappear. And so to be able to, to live the message that I'm inviting others into and to say, no, I absolutely know this is God's invitation. It's an invitation that I've been in the last five years into being a son, into creating with God. And now that the book's out, I get to stay in that. And so instead of now running into this place of striving and trying to be the biggest self-promoter, and, and and I know what a publisher expects for a book, so as a former publisher, it's tempting to, to start trying to pull those levers or to invest in a campaign and to be able to say, well, God, actually, I'm going to keep walking with you as a son. And so, yes, I'll communicate about my book, but I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to base my identity on book sales. I'm not going to become a pitch person all of a sudden where every time I talk to somebody, I'm trying to sell a book, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to watch what your plans are for this book. And I'm not going to check Amazon every 30 minutes to see if another unit sold. I'm not going to define myself in those ways. And so it's been a really freeing process to go through this side, the after it's written, then what side of believing in the message of knowing God's in it still and of watching the doors he's opening. And Mary, it's been wild because the doors he's opened big, I would have never imagined when I was writing the book. So like I'm speaking now to educators in the Christian school market because they've realized they've taught children in Christian schools about God and they've taught them how to pursue their talent or their gifting. But the part, the third leg of the stool of but how do you do that with God? Because ultimately, if that's not the foundation, you're going to have a lot of creative people who believe in God who implode down the road. And so they they have been embracing this message in a huge way. I didn't really think about the, the Christian education market when I wrote the book. I've been at businesses and corporations over the last half year teaching their teams, Fortune 500 companies, about these themes because they they really want to do something that has an eternal impact, but haven't really understood how to invite their employees into that on the creative team. So it's been fun. It's been wild. And um, yeah, if any listener, if that piques their curiosity, I just invite them to to check out the book, The Story of With. It's it's about how we can find a better way to live, love, and create. And so I would, I always ask people like what kind of advice you would give. So what kind of quick advice would you give to someone who maybe is sitting in the chair, having lunch with someone who tells them they need to change the way they're doing life? <laughs> what kind of advice would you give? Well, my, my advice would be to invite God into that situation and ask in, you know, internally as that's happening, my encouragement would be, Invite God into it and ask God, what are you up to in this? Because, Mary, in the case that the story I told you, 
I absolutely needed to hear that. It was it was hard love that this man was giving me. It would have been easy for him to have avoided that and ultimately just fired me or or let me do what I was doing. But he he had a lot of courage. But some people may have bosses or supervisors who are giving bad advice. And and so it's not a one size fits all, but but the answer always is, okay, God, help me interpret this. What are you doing here? What are you saying to me? And and then when you have that intimate relationship with God, he could say, you know what? You're fine. You're good. Just just nod your head and be respectful, but you, you don't need to change anything. Or like in my case, it could be, yep, everything's about to change. We're going for total transformation and it starts today. And so that's another part of just life with God is, is looking to him and his active presence, his continual presence to go, okay, I don't know. Should I go through this door? Should I not? Should I say yes? Should I say no? Should I sell everything and move or should I stay? And the only real answer is, God, what do you have to say? Tell me. You know, it, it takes the pro-con list off the table and it takes our own wisdom off the table as the decider and really lets us lean in. And that's what I think God's constant invitation is, is follow me, come with me, be expectant. Here we go. That's good. So how in the past year has God restoried you? It's really been in this last year, I feel like I'm fully stepping into sonship. And so my story, although it's been in the process, you know, I'm, I'm many chapters in now, from that beginning conversation. But I feel like the last year he's restored me to see everything through the lens of sonship. And so Mary, I think my story now is I am a, I am a son who can face any adventure with God. And if the bank account is low, if there's a tough situation at home with family, if, if work is in a hard season, whatever it may be, the story now for me is, okay, God, let's do this together. Like, are you, are you saying, you know, are you saying turn left, turn right, stay, be patient, charge the hill? It's, it's, it's so fun when you can't even outguess the storyteller. And so it takes life out of this predictable, controlling, small arena of trying to just keep, you know, grit it out and white knuckle it into God, you're putting me into situations where a miracle needs to happen in this in this restoried time of my life. And so if you don't show up, like I'm in trouble, but I know you're going to show up. And so it's funny when you never put yourself in the position to need a miracle, a lot of times you start to believe God doesn't do miracles anymore. And when you're with God, running with him, and he puts you in these situations that you know you can't get through or navigate out of your own brilliance or strength or skill. It's, it's so fun to go, <laughs> okay, like I'm facing a red sea or I'm, I'm dancing on the edge of a cliff, not to be a risk taker, not to be a daredevil, but simply because God has brought me here and that, that part of the story has led here. And now God, I get to see how you come through because a father always comes through for his son or daughter. And I don't I don't have the answer. And yet here I am. And I have found God 
in such new ways. I have discovered so many more um, parts of his personality and creativity, Mary, that way. So that's that's how he's restored. Now it's not about performance. It's about presence. And the last thing I would say is that day at the lunch table 20 years, 20 plus years ago, that supervisor at the time said, your team really doesn't care for your presence, Alan. They just care for your productivity. And that's why they're staying is because you're a super productive, successful guy. Well, now I'm in a season where when Ransomed Heart invited me to come join their team, what they said, and I believe this was a wink from God through them, they said, Alan, we know you're a productive guy, but we're not asking you here for your productivity. We're asking you to come for your presence. And and so your place at the table is presence-based. And it was a complete reversal of my story at that point as far as who I was, what was seen, what was wanted. And now, Mary, that's that's really my new approach to life is, God, I want your presence today. And as a former driven guy, all I really want today is to know you deeper. And yeah, let's get some things done. But I want to be more than I want to do. And so that's the that's the new story and the new chapter that I'm in. And I, I'm never going back. I'm never going back. Like, I know that was part of my past. And so I love to share it with people. But going forward, there's nothing like it. And I wish anybody listening, if they haven't tried this yet, boy, step into it. Because your own small story and, and the success you can have through drivenness and striving and trying to make it happen uh, is not really a very good story. And it's not a story people will tell around a campfire 200 years from now. But the story of you and God and a person who actively is pursuing that in their gifting, boy, that's the kind of story that may be a bedtime story that parents 200 years from now are telling their children. I love that. And it's a perfect segue into the ReStory show. And thank you so much for your vulnerability and your your story and being willing to go to those hard places. I just really appreciate the interview. And thank you so much for being on the show today, Alan. Oh, listen, Mary, thank you. I, I love that you're inviting people into these kind of stories and into just remembering who they were and who they are and the process. And so Thanks for being an outpost that does this for listeners. And thanks for letting me be part of it today. I loved it. The ReStory Show is all about community. And I want you to have the opportunity to tell your amazing story. All you have to do is click the gray box on the upper right-hand side of marydemuth.com and it says, share your story. You have up to two minutes to tell us what's going on in your life and to share an encouraging story with the ReStory Show listeners. And now let's listen to a new story. Sister Mary, thank you for sharing your testimony. I, too, can identify with sexual violation at a very young age. I was sexually violated from around the ages of seven, I think, until about 12. God is good. Uh, Part of my testimony is sexual violation and growing up with a parent that has developmental disabilities as well as mental mental illness. God is good to me. Um, I used to be a cutter. I cut from the age of maybe five until in my 20s when the Lord delivered me. Uh, I know that God is real because I am a true miracle. I've been through lots and lots of things. Uh, Kids bullied me, teased me, 
I was picked last for everything in school, every team, everything in gym. Uh, my mom, due to her mental health conditions, I had to wear the same clothes to school every day. I was only allowed one bath a week. Lots and lots of things, but God has been good to me. And I just wanted to share part of my testimony. I so happily ran up on your podcast looking at listening to Java with Julie. So I wanted to thank you for being so transparent and honest. I truly appreciate it. There are so many people that are battling under sexual violation as children. And that is one of my passions is to help women and little girls, anyone that has battled with violation um, and abuse of any sort, because I've been through many, many, many things, lots of trauma. I have written my book, The Salvation of Jeannie, Left for Dead, But Too Young to Die. And it's on Amazon. But I just really wanted to take time to just encourage you because that is such a powerful thing to share our testimony. So thank you. And I thank you for the opportunity to even speak on this microphone thing. Again, my name is Eugenia Rollins. I go by Jeannie. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, thank you for the fact that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God and that you love us so much and that our identity is completely found in you. Our worth is completely found in you. It is not the things that we do. It's not the things that we check off a list. You don't love us less or more based on what we perform and what we accomplish. And I'm just so grateful. Help us not to live as orphans on this earth, always trying to scrap our way through life, but to live as dependent children um, who are wildly and, and wholly loved by a God who pursues Thank you for Alan's story. Thank you how much it intersects mine in terms of just the striving, striving, striving. And I I thank you for that verse about this is cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. We don't need to try to make you famous. You already are. And we, our work is not going to accomplish that at all. Uh, what you ask for from us is our dependence and our surrender. So today we just choose right now to be dependent upon you and to surrender to you and to be loved by you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like more information about today's show, head on over to marydemuth.com forward slash restory 3-20. And may you live a brand new story this week.